Well, if there's a word that stands out when you read those verses, maybe it's the word judgment. There it is. I was waiting for it. I knew it. God is angry with me. And I'm going to be judged. And it's important that we deal with that word, and it's important that we recognize what it means in its context, but it's also important that we clear away distractions when we think about that word. Because as soon as we hear the word judgment, we think about judgment day. We think about God and a a throne of judgment, and we think about passages like the one that we just read in Ezekiel 9. And it's very easy for us to take in the fullness of that, even though we tremble and sometimes we try to distract ourselves, but judgment weighs on us, the idea that we will be judged. It's very important that we recognize that we have just been meditating upon First Peter at some length, and we've been reminded many times about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, particularly in chapter 3 and verse 18, where it says, He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That judgment has been taken away. And yet, it's important for us to recognize that the language that's used here is based upon some passages that are in the Old Testament that help us to understand something that's important for us to know. One of the passages that we read from Ezekiel 9, verses uh, 4 to 6, uh, specifically says that God wants the judgment in chapter 9 and verse 6 of Ezekiel to begin at his sanctuary. That's important. It's important that we recognize that the judgment passages that are given in the Old Testament specifically talked about a holy place, a place of holiness. And then there was judgment that was given uh, to uh, those who were going to be purified, those who were going to be uh, leaders, and those who were going to be uh, priests. And in a passage like uh, Zechariah 13, uh, verses 7 to 9, he speaks of the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. And then he says that uh, in all the land, two-thirds of the People will be cut off and die, but a third shall be left in it. And then he says in Zechariah 13, verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. What's happening? What's happening in these Old Testament passages is that God is actually purifying his people. He is creating a holy place, a place that is supposed to be set apart in the, in the uh, visible uh, presence of the nations. And God is actually purifying his people. That's helpful for us because we've already heard about purification. We've already heard, heard about the fiery trial in verse 12 that is designed to try us. And we're not to think it's strange that we're going through a time of purification, even participating in Christ's sufferings. Reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. 
because we have the spirit of glory resting on us. So when Peter writes that it is time for, as time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, we already have a background. We already know that that uh, passage that we just looked at last week is uh, based upon the passage in Malachi that talks about uh, God being a refiner and purifier of silver, purifying the sons of Levi. And we've learned that New Testament believers have the spirit in order that we might be made pure, that we might be purified by the fire of God's presence. See, he's creating a holy place, but now this holy place, as we've learned in 1 Peter, is the temple that is God's people, living stones. We're actually the temple presence of God. But in order to dwell in that temple, he has to purify us. And that's what he's doing. He's bringing about purification. And yes, he uses the opposition from the fallen world in order to do that. That's why uh, the verses before said that um, uh, we, can, we might suffer as a Christian and we are not to be ashamed and to glorify God. We are going to be reviled for the name of Jesus Christ. This is part of the purification process. But it's important that we understand that God is purifying believers now as the house of God. And this is what has begun, has begun with us first. And if that is what God is doing, if by his purifying fire present in us, He's causing us to go through suffering. What more does an unbeliever expect? What more would happen to an unbeliever, one who is not joined to Jesus Christ, one who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, one who is not being purified, but instead has the fiery, holy presence of God? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's a sobering question. If God's presence, making us more like Jesus Christ, uh, provides for us, a conflict with the world that actually purifies us by means of persecution, what more do they have before them to experience? And so we have this quotation from Proverbs 11 and verse 31. In verse 18, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, it's in our Bibles, the language is slightly different. Uh, it says, if the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner receiving their reward, uh, receiving the, the, that which is due to them. But using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Peter quotes this way, and he uses a word that, that makes us nervous again. If we were nervous at the word judgment, now we read in this quotation, if the righteous one is scarcely saved. Scarcely saved. That sounds like, you know, you might make it. But I'm not sure. If, if the creek doesn't rise, and if you, you know, hold on tight to that cord that you're being pulled up with, don't make it. But no, that's not what the word scarcely means. It's not questioning whether or not you'll be saved. The judgment has been taken away. There's no condemnation. Jesus Christ has died once for the unjust, the just for the unjust. He has died once. 
But it is saying, the word scarcely, that salvation is with difficulties. And that's important for us to know. In Acts 14, 22, uh, the uh, apostles strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Good news, brothers and sisters. This is purifying. The tribulations, the difficulties that you go through are purifying. That's why it is with difficulty that you are saved. You're scarcely saved. You're saved with difficulty because God is bringing you through a time of purification. You are now the new covenant people of God that are being purified like the sons of Levi were being purified. But you're being purified because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You're being purified because you live in constant conflict with a fallen world, people that don't trust in Jesus Christ, that have wicked hearts, that, that hate the gospel. And you are experiencing this persecution in order to make you better, in order to make you one who is completely saved. You are going through the process of being made like Jesus Christ. And so we come back to verse 19 and we think about what is probably one of the best ways to summarize 1 Peter that is in 1 Peter. It's a summary statement in many ways. And it says that we are those who suffer according to the will of God. That's a quite a good summary of 1 Peter, suffering according to the will of God. Not suffering randomly, not suffering because there is something that has been done in your life that you're now going to pay for. No, suffering according to God's will because he is purifying you, because he's making you like Jesus Christ, because you are being saved in the language of verse 18, because Judgment has begun at the house of God. The purifying presence of God is making you like Jesus. And so we are exhorted in verse 19 to two things. One, entrusting ourselves to God's will. And then secondly, to well-doing. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Commit your soul to him as to a faithful creator. Do good as you've committed your soul to him as to a faithful creator. And here's the good news. When you're being called upon to commit your soul to God as a faithful creator, Jesus has already done this on your behalf. He did that on the cross. He did that in Luke 23 and verse 46 when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When Jesus Christ said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was actually committing you to the Father in heaven. And he was praying, actually, in a way that is, that is like a bedtime prayer that the, the Jewish children learned. That is from uh, Psalm 31 and verse 5. You know, we know this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. We know that prayer. 
But the Jewish children learn this one. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 31, verse 5. This is the bedtime prayer of Jewish children. And Jesus Christ, before he breathes his last, is praying this. But when Jesus Christ prays this way, he's not just praying for himself. He's not just praying, you know, uh, may, I, may I go to my grave in peace. He's not praying that way. John Calvin puts it this way. Let us now remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included, as it were, in one bundle, all the souls of those who believe in him, that they might be preserved along with his own. And not only so, but by this prayer he obtained authority to save all souls, so that not only does the Heavenly Father, for his sake, deign to take them into his custody, but giving up the authority into his hands, commits them to be protected. And therefore Stephen also, when dying, resigns his soul into his hands, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Everyone who, when he comes to die following this example, shall believe in Christ, will not breathe his soul at random into the air, but will resort to a faithful guardian who keeps in safety whatever has been delivered to him by the Father. Now there's a lot there, but this is, this is what I want you to catch about what John Calvin writes. He's saying that when Jesus Christ prayed, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, it's like he gathered us all up in a huge blanket and brought us together and submitted us to the Father as he died. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the trust. He gave us the trust that we need when we are called upon to commit our souls to a faithful creator, the Lord Jesus Christ did that for us. He did that so that we might uh, be uh, able to entrust ourselves to the living God. We are told that we are to uh, uh, commit ourselves, our souls to him as to a faithful creator. I want you to think about those two words for a second. Faithful and creator. If you think of those two words, it solves a lot of problems. Creator emphasizes God's power, his mighty ability, his ability to create out of nothing. He is the creator. He's the one who made us. We belong to him. But faithful emphasizes that he is willing and he loves us. He is faithful because he has made a promise and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God is faithful. He is the faithful creator. That's the one that you're being called upon to entrust yourself to. And so Jesus Christ puts it this way as he unpacks for us uh, what this is like. He applies it to the issue of worry in Matthew 6. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? You have a faithful creator. 
He is your father in heaven and he provides for the birds. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about his own, its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Jesus applies that to worry. Jesus tells us that we have a father in heaven. We don't have to worry about food or clothing. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. It's all in the hands of our faithful creator. And yet when we suffer, when we're persecuted, we have a tendency to think that somehow God is angry with us, to think how, that somehow God is punishing us. And so we need to meditate upon these verses and we need to be driven right to the conclusion that we are called upon to commit our souls to the living God as to a faithful creator because Jesus has done that in order to give us that gift that gift of trust. But there's something more. When we suffer, when we're under persecution, one of the things that drops off is doing good for other people. It's easy for us in the midst of persecution to get very self-focused, very self-interested, saving our own skin. And yet again and again in 1 Peter, this call to do good has been given to us. It's in chapter 2 and verse 12 as... Um, we're told uh, that we are to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may, by the good works they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we're told uh, in chapter 2 and verse 15 that this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It enables the Gentiles to see good works that glorify God. It enables foolish men to see that their conversation is foolish and needs to stop. In chapter 2 and verse 20, we're told um, when we do good and suffer, taking it patiently, that it's commendable before God. It actually produces that which is pleasing to God. And this is the heritage we've been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 2 says, Who is he that will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And uh, verses 16 and 17 uh, speak to us about uh, those who revile our good conduct in Christ being ashamed because it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You see this idea that it's the will of God for us to continue to do good in the midst of persecution and to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. This is the major theme of the book of First Peter. And it's the major theme of our lives. And it's important that we recognize that this is what it looks like to be made like Jesus Christ. Because this is the way Jesus Christ was at that moment on the cross when he committed his, himself to his Father in heaven. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, 
We're told that in First Peter 2. The Lord Jesus Christ was entrusting himself. But not only that, he was bundling you up so that you might have the privilege of living as part of the people of God who trust their faithful creator, no matter what. And who continue to do good because this is God's will. Because they want to please the Father in heaven above all. Because Jesus Christ has made us that way. And you see, that's what is being formed in us. We are actually not only admiring Jesus Christ and looking at him and seeing how wonderful he is, but we're being made like him. We're being made like him in our trust and continuing to do good. We're being made like him as we know that the Father in heaven is willing, faithful to his promises. He is able. He has the power of the creator, the one who provides for the birds, will provide for you in times of persecution. Don't be afraid of God's judgment. It's designed to make you better. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the judgment in this sense the judgment that shows that we are different from the world, the judgment that purifies us, the judgment that marks us out as your people, your purifying presence. And we do tremble for those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize even as we are going through times of suffering and opposition, that it is designed for us to see the weight of the judgment that rests on them. In fact, it will drive us to live more closely to the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to do good according to your will, to continue to trust you as our faithful creator. When we go through times of great challenge, when we go through grief, when we go through times of uh, confusion and too many things on our plate, when we go through physical challenges as we grow older, We ask, Father, that you help us to recognize that this is the heritage, this is the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us from the cross, given to us by the Spirit from the risen Christ, but the very life of Jesus Christ on that cross, suffering according to your will, committing our souls to you, continuing to do good, because you are our faithful creator. And we ask that you would help us to live this way as the people of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.